and welcome to episode 44 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week, we're both really excited about our stories. We are. (laughs) We are going to be covering the state of Oklahoma. Yes. And you have the true crime, and I have the paranormal, and I have a drink that I She's think... She's, like, so excited about I this am. drink. I think you're going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do know there's beer in it, because you asked me for a beer from my fridge. It's so. a beer cocktail. Oh, my gosh. This is, like, right up our alley. <laughs> so, this is from the Spruce Eats. It's called Lunchbox Drink. Okay, peanut butter and jelly, lunchbox. <laughs> I have a theme going. The theme here, mom. <laughs> and in particular, this is called Edna's lunchbox drink. And the reason being that it's named for the bar in Oklahoma that serves it, that came up with it. Cute. Okay, so Edna's lunchbox. And it's equal parts beer, orange juice, plus amaretto. Ooh. Have you ever thought of mixing beer with orange juice? No. I haven't either. Wait till you taste it. Six ounces of orange juice, six ounces of beer, light beer, actually any kind of beer. Yeah, she literally was like, just give me a beer, any beer. Just grab it and give (laughs) it to me. I don't care. Just give me a beer. (laughs) And one ounce of amaretto. Okay. That's it. Oh, Oh, I'm very intrigued. I actually gave a taste to your husband upstairs and he was like, Holy smokes, that's good. Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) All right. Cheers, Mom. Cheers. What do you think? Holy cow. Do you like it, really? That is phenomenal. Three ingredients. So easy to make. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) She stops for another big gulp. It's that amaretto that, like, sets it off. The hazelnut of the amaretto, yes. Holy cow. I mean, like I said before, I never thought orange juice and beer, you know. Oh, God, no. I mean, lemonade and beer, yeah, we've done that. Sure. Limeade and beer, yeah, but yeah. orange juice, nope, never thought. That is oh, so good. tasty. I'm happy you like it. Ooh, this might be one of my new favorites, because that's all things that I always have on hand. <laughs> A little too easy to make. <laughs> well, shoot. <laughs> so I'll be honest with you, Mom. Okay. Don't lie. I don't know how to feel about the true crime story this week. Okay. (laughs) During my research for this one, my emotions were all over the board. The case makes me really angry at times, super confused, and then there's a whole lot of sad. Oh. This case has a ton of loops and turns and names. So if you get confused or tangled up somewhere in the story, just stop me and I'll try to help you. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about this case is that it had gone cold for 19 years and was only just solved two years ago. Oh. What's more is that the case broke only days before the Golden State Killer case had broken. So it kind of got overlooked. Of course. But the two girls this story is about don't deserve to be overlooked. Their story deserves to be told. The two girls I want to tell you all about is Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible. The two girls lived in the very small town of Venita, Oklahoma, a rural northeastern Oklahoma town. The two met when they were in kindergarten and grew to be inseparable. They lived across the street from one another until about the sixth grade when Ashley Freeman and her family moved about 20 minutes away to their 40-acre farm. Oh. But this did not end the the friendship at all. The two went together like peas and carrots. And now they have more room to roam, I guess, with 40 acres. Both were great students on the honor roll and very active in school. Ashley was more of a tomboy. She played basketball and enjoyed hunting. And Laura was a cheerleader. She was always there for her friend. Through the good and the bad, the two were inseparable. So let's move forward just a bit. It's December 1999. It's Christmas break, and the two girls spend most every day with one another on their break. I remember those days. Laura had her driver's license and her own car, so they would cruise. (laughs) We talked about that last week. (laughs) (laughs) But it was pretty common for Laura to pick Ashley up, and the two would just hit the town together. Right. Ashley's birthday was coming up, and she was about to turn 16, too. She was working really hard to save up for her own car. She had about $4,000 saved. Oh, good girl. And she was planning on taking her driver's license test the day after her birthday. So like I said, it's Christmas break. The two girls hang out most of the break and Ashley's 16th birthday is coming up. But she doesn't really want to celebrate it. 
You see, that January, so about 11 months prior, her brother Shane had been killed. The year had just not been the same without him. There was Christmas that just wasn't the same, and then her birthday was coming up. I'll get there. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, you're fine. She really just wanted to spend her birthday with Laura. So Wednesday, December 29th, rolls around Ashley's birthday, and Ashley's mom, Kathy, takes the girls to town. They do a little shopping, grab dinner at the local pizzeria, and the two girls decide that they want to have a sleepover. Mm -hmm. So Kathy drives them to Laura's house so that she can ask her parents and grab her overnight things. She asks her dad, Jay. He says, sure. She grabs her bag and leaves, saying, bye, daddy. I love you on her way out. On her way out, though, she also runs into her mother, Laureen. So just so that you're following here. Jay and Lorraine and Kathy is the mother of the other girl. Very good. Mm-hmm. So Laura's parents are Jay and Lorraine. Gotcha. And Lorraine was just getting home from work. So she's like, yeah, that's that's fine. Go ahead and spend the night. But be home tomorrow because we have a dentist appointment. So come home in the morning. We have okay. dentist appointments. So Laura goes over to Ashley's house. They spend the evening with Ashley's family, her mom, Kathy, and her dad, Danny. They watch a hunting show on TV. Then Ashley's boyfriend, Jeremy, comes over to give her her birthday gift. And they have some cake and ice cream. And then Jeremy leaves around 930. Okay. The next morning, Laureen gets up early for her manager shift at a restaurant in town. And around 730 a.m., she receives a call from her son. He's terribly upset on the phone. Mom, didn't Laura spend the night at Ashley's last night? He said, the Freeman's house is on fire. Oh, no. She gets off the phone with her son and calls the sheriff's office, demanding to know what's going on. But they won't tell her anything over the phone. So she waits for her husband, Jay, to come and pick her up so that they could go and find answers. At this time, all the tongues are wagging in town. I'm sorry. That was just a really weird saying. (laughs) I don't know why I even chose to use it. (laughs) So anyway, it's a small town. Everyone's talking. (laughs) And Lorene hears that a body has been found in the ash of the fire. Lorene and Jay Bible head straight to the Freeman farm. Now, when they get there, it's like all roped off. And they see that the Freeman's trailer home is absolutely ash. I mean, just total rubble. They see many police deputies from the sheriff's office there, but they're all just kind of standing around. Oh, no. So they ask them why, and they respond that they couldn't do anything at the crime scene and that they were waiting for the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigators, so OSBI, to get there. this doesn't sound good. That's kind of heavy. So why, you might be wondering. Why? (laughs) Remember how I said earlier that Shane, Ashley's brother, had been killed? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he had been killed by a deputy from the sheriff's office. Oh, no. So the story with Shane is that one night, Danny Freeman, so the father Father. of Shane and Ashley, Mm -hmm. called the police stating that his son had run off. Deputy Mezik searched and found Shane. And when he did, he caught up with him and he refused to go home. And he claimed that his dad had beat him. How old was he? He he was was in high school. He was in high school. Okay. He claimed his dad had beat him. And... Shane then proceeded to show Deputy Mezek his wounds. Shane had been whipped so badly that he was bleeding through his underwear. Oh, no. Shane refused to go home for some time and even crashed at the Bible's home for a while. And during this time, he started just taking the wrong path. He started acting out. And I guess he even stole a light from a police officer's car. (laughs) <laughs> and would use it to pull people over as a prank. Oh, jeez. Which leads me to, guys, if you ever get pulled over, you have every right to call the police department and make sure you're lawfully getting pulled over. But. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like a flip just. Yeah. He just really started acting out. So on January 8th, 1999, police are called saying that Shane was seen with a stolen vehicle on the side of the road. Deputy David Hayes is the first on the scene, and unfortunately, the only statement for what happened that night comes from him. The next deputy to arrive on the scene was Mezik, the original deputy that dealt with Shane. Mm -hmm. And when he got there, Shane Freeman was deceased, laying on the ground. Hayes told him that he had pulled up, got out of his car, and Shane instantly pointed a gun at him. Hayes gave his warnings but had no other choice but to shoot him. Shane was shot once and was killed. 
Now, this is the family that hunts, right? So he had access to a gun. Yeah, but interestingly enough, he actually had stolen this gun from the Bible's home. What? Yeah. And they had been hearing around town, Laureen Bible reported that she had heard around town that Shane was saying that he wanted to commit suicide mm-hmm. or that he wanted suicide by, by a cop. cop. So I don't know if that's true or not, but... Rumors again, who mm-hmm. knows? Now the court issued, this was self-defense. It was a justified shooting. But even though this is what the case was issued, the Freemans did not agree with it at all. They believed that if Shane had been confronted by police, that he would have run away. The body did not show signs of this, though. He was not shot in the back. It it all went with the deputy's story. The Freeman family just couldn't accept it. And they told everyone that would listen that they planned on filing a wrongful death suit against the sheriff's office. Now, when you file a wrongful death suit, you have a year to do so. So they it happened in on January 8th, 1999. So they would have until January 8th, 2000 to file that lawsuit. Gotcha. And I actually learned this. I didn't know. It's really pricey to do so. At least $5,000. Really? Mm-hmm. Super pricey. With attorney fees and stuff? Yeah. Okay. So the Freeman family and the sheriff's office don't have the greatest relationship. Gotcha. Hence why the OSBI was called to check out the scene of the fire at the Freeman's trailer home. They didn't want to be suspected of foul play. They just, they didn't want their hands dirtied in it. Conflict of interest Mm -mm. kind of thing. Okay. So finally, around 10 a.m., OSBI shows up and they assess the body that was found there in the ash. They only found one body. And after inspecting it, they came to the conclusion that it is a woman. And because the woman had a wedding ring, it was assumed that it was the mother, Kathy Freeman. Oh. Of course, they removed the body to take it in for testing as well. Yeah. OSBI stayed and sifted through the debris at the house. Lorene and Jay Bible standing outside the police tape waited for any news. Remember that money that Ashley had been saving for her car? $4,000. She had been keeping it hidden in the freezer. And police were told, told this and they searched the freezer and the money was not there. It's gone. So was this a robbery gone wrong? But who would know that? Exactly. But over time, Laura's purse was found in the ash with her ID and almost $200 in it. So that didn't make any sense. If it was a robbery, they would have gone after all the purses, too. Why just the money in a freezer? Why just the money in the freezer that we even knew about? So around 530 that evening, they come to the Bibles that were waiting there and the Freeman family that's all waiting outside this tape. And they tell them they're done. There was no more evidence that they could gather from the scene. Lorraine asked, are you sure there's no more bodies? I mean, she's waiting for her, her daughter. And, and she's been waiting like, all day for yeah, this. Yeah, like what is going on? Jeez. And they said, we're 100% sure there are no more bodies. We're- the scene was still closed off, but they were finished. So basically we're missing three people. Three people. Now, Jay was concerned with this and so was everybody else. He hated that they were just walking away. This was a 40 acre farm. And they had just spent the afternoon in, quote, 50-foot circle around where the house had been. No cadaver dogs, no nothing. That's it. And Danny's dad made a good point in an interview I watched from Tulsa World TV. He didn't understand why they would open the crime scene up when there's three people missing. Yeah, yeah. The next morning, local ranchers on horseback and the local community all walked the 40-acre farm, combing the area for any, anything. Not just remains, but just anything. Anything. That evening, Lorene and Jay are called into the police station to chat with the OSBI to, quote, talk about what we can do to find the girls, unquote. But instead, their conversation, long conversations, might I add, were just the OSBI questioning Lorene and Jay about what they knew about Kathy and Danny Freeman. It was kind of a known thing in the area that Danny grew and sold marijuana. Mm. So a theory they were playing at was that the fire was started or had something to do with maybe a drug dealing gone bad. Oh, now that was a theory from authorities at the time. The public, the community. Again, this is a small town. Right. They have other theories. They knew about the feud between the police and the Freemans. 
and there were rumors that the police of the area had something to do with the fire. No. The next morning, so December 31st, 1999, OSBI gets results from the testing done at the crime scene and on Kathy Freeman's body. Mm-hmm. The whole case completely changes. Kathy Freeman had been shot. Oh. She had been shot. But it's her for sure. Yes. She had been shot in the head with a shotgun, single shot, and was dead before the fire had started. There was also an accelerant used in the fire. So now the OSBI's eyes are all on Danny. He becomes the prime suspect. Right. Possibly Danny had gone a little mad and had taken the girls, wanting to exchange them for the deputy that shot his son. Like, this is just all rumors going around town. Others theorized that, remember, he was abusing Shane. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he was abusing Ashley and Kathy stepped in or a family fight ensued. But where were they? Right. All the vehicles were still there at the house. Oh, they are? I was Mm going to ask about that. Yep. Okay. All the vehicles were still there. The same morning, police opened up the crime scene of the burnt home for the search parties to look in. They can go in and just look into it. Now, at this point, police have not told them that Kathy had been shot. They were kind of keeping that to themselves. And they had not told them that an accelerant was used. But they were done with the crime scene, so they said, go ahead, take a look. It was early in the morning, and Jay and Laureen were the first there to search through the rubble. Mom, I'm not kidding you, but within a few minutes of being there, Jay looks down and knows right away he is looking at the body what? of Danny Freeman. No. He was terribly burnt. And what Lorene remembered most is that Danny Freeman didn't have a face. So from the top of his teeth up, his face was like blasted away. Oh, Police shotgun. were called. And sure enough, How did Danny they miss that? had been shot by a shotgun just like his wife, Kathy. Police taped the scene off again, even telling the Bibles that they had to leave. And they're like, hell no, (laughs) we will not go. We will watch you guys search every piece of ash. This is ridiculous. Because obviously you guys are a bunch of dumb. Mom, Jay even said in an interview that there were boot prints on Danny's body from the police. They walked over it. They just walked over it. And he said it was so clear. He was like. Did we, did we move anything like he was even questioning Lorraine like did we move something to uncover him right. no he was just out in the open okay can you imagine if they wouldn't have gone out there to go look and trusted the police to not go back and look how oh. long would that body have just laid there and how how would they even have known would they ever have even found him and how can two two people who are not versed in crime scene notice it this body right away baffles me it baffles me so the police search and search and like dig up everything and the girls are still not found so now there are new suspicions and new rumors (laughs) freemans were going to file that lawsuit they only had over a week to a little over a week to do so they needed that five thousand dollars maybe it was a drug deal gone bad he was trying to just sell stuff and it just went bad maybe danny found himself in a tough situation again the knowledge of that he abused shane maybe he was abusing ashley and the girls did this Oh, no. Now it goes back on the girls. Yes. Yeah, but why wouldn't she take her $200 in her purse? Yeah, her ID was left. That doesn't make sense because she's the driver. None of this makes any sense. No one knows. No answers come to light except... Now, here's where I get mad. (laughs) Okay, so the Freeman family, they don't trust the police. (laughs) And I actually don't blame them. Right now, I don't either. And... So they hired private investigators. They hired two private investigators to help them out. And on the third day of searching, they found something that is literally the smoking gun in all of this. A small little piece of evidence I need you to remember. I'm not going to go into it yet. Okay. But just put it in the backside of your brain. Now, when you say searching, they were searching for the girls or searching the area. area. Just looking for any clues. Okay. And in the road outside of where the Freeman home used to sit was a vehicle insurance card. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just that little piece of paper, right? So private investigator Tom Pryor called the OSBI in charge and told him he had found something that may provide information to the case. And now this is all his conversation that he quoted in this interview I watched. Okay. So he said that they said, then what would that be in a real like smart alecky way? And he said, well, I have an insurance card to a blue car. And I know a blue vehicle was seen driving high speeds down the road around the time of the fire. 
I think there's a connection here. And they apparently said, oh, you do, do you? I'm not interested. And hung up the phone. The end. That's it. Now, these aren't the local police. We're still talking about the Bureau of Investigations. Yeah. They just wanted nothing to do with it. Now, keep this in mind. And remember, this is found on the third day because that's going to kind of tie everything in. So that's it until 18 months after the fire and the murders. Word was spreading and inmates at a local prison started talking. They said that Ashley and Laura were seen at a New Year's Eve party there at a so I guess there was a family in Ottawa County called the Glover family that was known to cook meth and apparently were just not the best family. <laughs> oh, well, I thought really good families cooked meth. <laughs> <laughs> On turkey. No turkey. We're just going to have some meth today. Your cook, mashed potatoes. Cook me up some meth for dinner. <laughs> okay. Apparently the girls were being held at their house. They had been drugged, raped, and tortured at this party and it was all caught on tape. Warrants were issued, searches were made, and nothing was found. Mm. Except a small patch of body fluid, what looked like blood, on the carpet in the house. Mm -hmm. The small patch of carpet was torn up and taken in for testing. How long do you think it took for them to get the results? I'm surprised that they even tore up that patch of carpet. Yeah, after everything else. (laughs) Yeah. Over a year later. So, and I understand that these cases take money and they take time and they, you know, I understand that. But over a year? Yeah. I wish I understood the system better. And the results come in and it's not Ashley or Laura. The Freeman and Bible family were all let down again. At this time, the community had all come together and there were now, there was now a $50,000 reward. Oh my goodness. This bump in money brought in a lot more tips and a lot of different leads but nothing substantial no so one lead led to tommy lynn a man on death row in texas he was in prison for stabbing a 13 year old girl he confessed to the murder and the fire what the murder of he the, confessed to of the Kathy murder and, and the fire of the freemans even led the police on a long drive out to where he said he dumped ashley and laura's bodies but this just ended up being a joy ride Another joy ride. This man deserves no joy. And then in 2005, a big break. Serial killer Jeremy Jones. He was on death row in Alabama for raping and killing a woman, pouring gasoline on her and setting her and her home on fire. Okay. M.O. sounds. He was arrested 10 miles from the Freeman's farm. Oh. The night of the fire. But he was arrested for being intoxicated in public. Okay. So not for the death at that time. Okay. So they go to Alabama to interview him. It takes some time, but over time, they really think they have their man. He tells them everything that happened that night, even naming the kind of shotgun that was used to kill the Freemans, as well as the exact accelerant used to light the house on fire. And those are things that they did not release to the public. Okay. He said that Danny had owed him money. He went to get it. A fight ensued and he killed Kathy and Danny. When he went to drive away, the two girls came running out of the house, not knowing what had happened. They ran straight to him and got in his truck huh? as soon as they got in the because yeah, their house is on fire. Oh, yeah, of course. And he's on the road parked in front of the, the fire. So they run out scared. Well, surely so they, they heard the shotgun blast, though. They have no idea what's going on. And so they run they see this guy and they run and he tells them, you know, get in my truck and they just start crying. And then he starts crying because he didn't know what to do with them. He ended up tying them up and drives them out to a mine shaft in Kansas. He kills them and drops them down this mine shaft, drives back to Oklahoma, got high and then was arrested. Oh, remember man. That he was okay, arrested. Yeah. Sequel of events. OK, they finally have their first credible lead. The family wants closure. They just want the bodies of these girls. So the OSBI drives out to Kansas to where he directed them to go look. And they find it's not just one mine, but hundreds of shallow mines that are like all linked underground. So if water goes down them, the water underneath can just like flush anywhere. So they bring dogs. They drop cameras. But nothing is found. And... 
I mean, but how interesting. Like, if you want to get rid of a body, where are these mines in <laughs> Beth, Kansas? don't go there, please. Okay, sorry. And don't say where in Kansas. <laughs> okay, sorry. I didn't, first of all, when I was reading this and doing it, I was like, there's mines in Kansas? Like, mm-hmm. okay, I know. I'm ignorant. <laughs> now <but>. you know, but. <laughs> anyway, so they don't find anything. And then they go back to Alabama and they talk to him about, you know, there was nothing there. What else can you tell us about where you put the bodies? He recants his entire confession. Oh, That's no. It. But he had to have known. Did he run into somebody that knew? I mean, all this information. They also find that his story couldn't have added up because the drive from where they were to the mines was like over an hour. And from the time that the fire, they calculated the fire started mm-hmm. to the time it took him to grab them, drive the hour out there get rid of them, drive the hour back to be intoxicated enough to be didn't picked up to be arrested. It just didn't make sense. But then he would have had to talk to somebody that knew all the details. He could have either talked to somebody or he just guessed. Because I and thought you just, said some of these details hadn't been released. They had not been released. He knew exactly what accelerant. How many different accelerants are there? I Gasoline. I just say gas. <laughs> I know. That's what I would think. <laughs> Man. The ignorant episode. Um, I don't know. I, I, he knew it kind of shotgun and he knew the accelerant days go by weeks go by months and then years until 2017 and the new Craig County Sheriff announced there may be a break in the case. Like I said, this was the new County Sheriff. Okay. So listen to this The guy gets this sheriff gig, right? He's decorating his new office and he goes and cleans out an old closet and in the closet he finds a crate. That has reports and investigative notes on the Freeman Bible case with critical evidence. Oh, what? my God. So these notes that he finds tucked away in a closet lead to witnesses, which lead to other witnesses, which actually lead There's somewhere. There's witnesses to this. Remember that insurance? Well, like hearsay, but proof and just just I just, remember the insurance card. Yes. yes the insurance on the third card. Day. The P.I. found. Well. It wasn't long after the sheriff found this crate of notes that they went knocking on Tom Pryor, the PI's door. Now, back up real fast to when they first found the card. Remember, they told him they weren't interested. Mm-hmm. Well, they also told the two PIs, Joe Dugan and Tom Pryor, that they needed to abandon their investigating right away. They claimed that the two were interfering with the investigation and that if they continued, they would lose their PI Okay, licenses. this all sounds so fishy right now. Over the years, Joe Dugan had passed away. I mean, it's been a long time. And his family had, when he died, his family called the sheriff's office and tried to leave his notes and stuff on the case with them. And they wouldn't take it. No, they didn't need it. They didn't want it. The family tossed it. I mean, they don't, they didn't know. And so now it's 2017 and Tom Pryor had already gotten rid of all of his notes. He had been forced off the case. Right. So he got rid of all of his notes, except for the insurance card. Oh, wow. Mm Mm-hmm. He kept it. He knew it. He knew it has something to do with it. The card he had belonged to a woman where upon looking into it, this woman they found in 1999, even though the car belonged to her, it was mostly driven by her boyfriend, Warren Philip Welch II. He went by Phil. Upon looking into him, they discover not just another meth dealer and he cooked meth, but he is just a very, very evil man. So Phil's dead. Mm. And because he's dead and people are questioning this now, people are starting to talk. Oh, geez. He yeah. was a very feared. So man. people were scared. Right. And that's why they didn't a talk. A very feared man. So there's also two other men linked with him in this case. Ronnie Dean Busick and David A. Pennington. So by now it's around 2017, 2018. My sources kind of bounced around. So this investigation took place around that time okay two of the three men had died and like i said now witnesses are starting start finally starting to talk over the years the three men had almost bragged about what they had done to ashley freeman and laura bible in the early morning of december 30th the three men had gone to the freeman farm to settle some kind of drug debt the facts can't be certain because the only living of the three is Ronnie Dean Busick. Mm-hmm. And he is so scattered on the night. Oh, you've been doing meth. So apparently a fight ensued 
And according to the affidavit filed by the state of Oklahoma, the two young girls walked in on the fight Mm -hmm. and they ran and hid in an open field. After lighting the home on fire, the girls had jumped up in the field to see the commotion Mm -hmm. and they were spotted. Dang it. They were grabbed and taken to Phil Welch's trailer home where they were drugged, raped and tortured over the next few days. Mm. Witnesses claimed that Welch would showcase Polaroid photos of the girls in oh, bars. Jeez. They were each tied up and gagged on a bed. He would, there was like some torture even shown in a lot of these photos. And some photos even showed him laying in the bed next to them. Ugh. What's even more just disturbing and frustrating is this man was so feared. So he went away to prison for beating his girlfriend. And while he's in prison, his girlfriend was still living in his trailer. And she found in this briefcase all these Polaroids. And she didn't turn. And she saw that the bedspread and the Polaroids of the girls was was the same bedspread on her bed that she was sleeping on. Oh, my gosh. And so she just piled everything up. And I think she even took the Polaroids with her as kind of like a blackmail against Mm -hmm. him Mm -hmm. and left him. And when he got out of prison, he found her and he threatened her and said, if you tell anybody, I'm going to put you down a mine just like I did those girls. But she didn't say anything. Jeez Louise. So did I mention that Phil was a devil incarnate? He was the ringleader to all of these three. He was a terrible man. He was in and out of prison for beating girlfriends, burglary, eh, close enough, and drug-related issues. He was a mean, tough, rough, very scary guy who people were very frightened of. Was the police also afraid of him? I think they were, but listen to this. He was also an ordained minister. What? Who loved to sing Bible hymns. Did he have a church? He was pretty busy in his church. None of this makes it right for all those people for all those years to keep their mouths shut. Like, no. N- none of this being scary, whatever. It does not make it right. But, you know, many sources said that he threatened a lot of people and he just sounds terrible. I mean, this guy, basically, he went as far as decorating a room in his trailer with wanted posters of those two girls. He's sick. Sick. Now, like I said, two of the three men were dead and it was only Ronnie Busick left. And it really sucks because he basically claims he can't remember that night. I mean, he states he sat in the car the whole time the conflict happened in the Freeman home. Of course. He's, his statements have changed over time and he says that he can only remember bits and pieces. He's in his late 60s now. He would have been in his late 40s then. This will churn your stomach. Do you remember how the card was found on day three of searching? Mm -hmm. From what Busick and witnesses have reported, the girls were left alive and tortured anywhere between five to seven days. They would have still been alive. So if the police would have followed through with the lead the PI found, there is a possibility that those girls could have been tracked down. I think they knew. I think they knew or they suspected. I think that guy had something over the police. Where they were scared of him for some reason, the way they shut it down. And I'm sorry, listeners, but I am not going to give you any more details of these three men. I don't think I don't think they deserve our worthy. time. Nope. They were terrible men. They did terrible things. And I know it's totally unchristian of me, but I really hate them. I just oh, they're just. Geez. Again, their names are Ronnie Dean Busick, Warren Philip Welch II, and David A. Pennington. You can look them up and get more information if you'd like. Is the guy in jail? He is in jail. And I think he only got a 10-year sentence. Yeah, he might not make it, though. And And they're, you know, trying to work with him. We'll lower your sentence if you just tell us where the bodies are. They are Maybe they did dump them down the mine shaft. Which mine shaft? But exactly (laughs) like the guy said. So he has led them to a few mine shafts and even a basement that has since been concreted over and wherever they get he gives any ideas they go running with dogs and everything else and um yeah he was arrested and charged with four counts of first degree murder and malice four counts of accessory to first degree murder two counts of kidnapping one count of arson and one count of accessory to first degree arson he's serving a 10-year sentence that just doesn't seem it doesn't add up It just does not add up. Again, I will never understand the system. (laughs) Mm -mm. You want to hear even more stomach turning? I don't know. (laughs) He states that the fight ensued over barely two ounces of meth. 
Oh, jeez, Louise. Don't do drugs. I've said it before and I'll say it again, but in this podcast, I will always advocate for the victims. This episode is for Ashley and Laura, so I'm done talking about those terrible men. We're going to move on. Laureen Bible worked her booty off to get this story out there over the years. She was on every news channel she could. She got interviewed by any article. I mean, just everything. The case was on Unsolved Mysteries. It was on America's Most Wanted. It was on Disappeared. It was on Vanished by Beth Holloway and even had a four-part series on HLN called Hell in the Heartland. She was fearless in her search, going into places. I mean, I'm going to get emotional, but she went into places she probably should have never set foot in. She went toe-to-toe with drug dealers and even the cartel. Jeez. The family went to court and said their final words to Busick, but they were, they're still working yeah. really hard to find the remains of Ashley and Laura. Uh, Lorraine Bible's health is deteriorating. She's not doing very well, and she's really just not in a good place, but she's still fighting to find her daughter's remains. Quote, she's been gone more than half her life. I need a place that I can go and say that's where my daughter is. I guess she was going to the Freeman's driveway and just... Jeez. That's all I got for you. That was really sad. We're both just sitting here with tears running down our face. I'm sorry. That was just really horribly sad. Yeah. So um, anyway. You need to have us drink. Okay. So I'm going to take you to Guthrie, Oklahoma. Yes. Lighten things up, shall we? And once I start talking about this, you're going to recognize it. If you don't already. Uh, The Stone Lion. It's okay. a and b right now. Okay. Um, you'll know why. It'll sound familiar. I'm sure it's the from st- Ghost Adventures. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Good old Zachary's been there. Should have guessed. <laughs> You'd think that I was a devoted Ghost Adventures. <laughs> you think we, I think we all know you are. <laughs> okay. So the Stone Lion, which is an inn now, but wasn't, was built in 1907. By Mr. F. E. Hewton. I hope I hope I'm saying that right. For his family, which consisted of his wife and twelve children. Oh my gosh, what's up with all these kids and all these stories? Well, 1907, people had lots of kids. And, I mean, big families, you know. Yeah. When the family lived in the house, their seven-year-old daughter Augusta contracted whooping cough. Oh she no. was given cough medicine, which in those days had codeine and opium in it. Whoa. By the nurse. Whoa. Unfortunately, the nurse gave her too much of the medicine and the child died. That comes in later. Mm. In the 1920s, the family hit hard times and leased the house to an undertaker who converted the home to the Smith Funeral Home. Okay. This must be a really big house. It is huge and it's beautiful. Oh, most funeral homes are. Uton family moved back into the home in the 1930s. Both Mr. and Mrs. Hewton were dead by 1958. In 1986, the property was purchased by Becky Luker, who renovated and converted the home into a bed and breakfast. The inn is an old Victorian mansion, which I think you would Mm. see and absolutely fall in love with. It's beautiful inside and outside. I mean, the the grounds are beautiful, too. There are six different rooms to choose from, all on the second floor. In the morning, the guests are served an extravagant breakfast, hot French pressed coffee. Mm, My favorite. Blueberries or strawberries and rum cream, quiche, muffins, and Canadian bacon. Oh, and you're invited to come down to breakfast dressed in your comfy robe provided by the inn. Heaven. Another addition to your visit to the inn could be part of a murder mystery. Oh my gosh, how fun. Yes. And as you know, I do murder mysteries in my theater company that I own on the Edge Players. And (laughs) shameless plug there, mom. (laughs) Sorry. Once this COVID stuff ends, I hope to get back rolling. But But we have the podcast. (laughs) COVID or no COVID, we have the podcast. Thank God. But um, anyway, I, I have often thought of doing a murder mystery weekend in a bed and breakfast. It's one of my next. Ad- Why wouldn't you do that? That'd endeavors. be so much fun. I would even do take part in that. I mean, that would be so much fun. Um, Becky only does them. I mean, they solve the murder that night 
Okay, so I, in my mind, I would do a whole weekend Who's of it. Becky? But the owner of the bed and breakfast, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the one I talked about, just two sentences prior. Okay. Sorry, there aren't that many names in this one. <laughs> <laughs> Becky person who's okay. doing this with you, Mom. <laughs> okay, now reading the itinerary for the murder mystery, it sounds so much fun. You get assigned a part in advance, given a short biography of the person that you are going to play, and advised as to what clothes to wear. Oh my pl- gosh! The play takes place in the 20s, 30s, or 40s. Movies are even suggested to you to get you in the time period that the murder will take place. I am loving this. Let's do this, Mom. Now, the murder is solved that night. It could okay, be a killer so. hangover. The one thing that I found a bit strange was the walk before dinner to the cemetery, which is close by, to visit the grave of Elmer McCurdy. They just do that every night after dinner? Before dinner. Oh. At the murder mystery. Oh, okay. Okay. So they all just follow her in this line up to the graveyard, to this grave. Is it her own little seance she's doing? More on him in a few minutes. Oh, did I mention that as soon as you walk into the mansion, one of the first things that catches your eye is the embalming table? They still have it there. That was used in the funeral home. It sits right in the hallway. Like decorated with candles and stuff? It's really nothing on it, but it looks like it's marble. Yeah. Well, at least put some pretty ferns or something on it. <laughs> at least put something on it. <laughs> Obviously, there's more to this place than this beautiful B&B that I just described. With an embalming table. With an embalming table in the hallway. And random walks to the cemetery. Not random. When Becky Luker and her son Grant first moved into the house, the police were called many times. The family would hear doors opening and closing, hear footsteps in the hallway, and of course they thought these were intruders. Oh so my they gosh, yeah, the this house is so big, I'm sure. Who searched the home and the grounds and found nothing. One of the stories told by the family was that Grant had a playroom. And each night, his job was to clean up and put away his toys, just like your boys. Yeah, because my kids pick up their toys. But mom, hold on. So it was just Betty and... Becky. um... (laughs) Why can't I remember this woman's name? (laughs) So it was just Betty and her... (laughs) I did it again. (laughs) I knew what I was doing. Becky and her son, Grant. Just these two people moving to this huge house. I think Becky moved in with her children i think there were more than just grant but grant is always the only one that i could see referred to hmm so but why man she had a big undertaking by yeah she did i didn't hear maybe she had a husband too but i right now it's just just becky becky and grant Mm -hmm. okay and right now i think it's just becky actually that lives in that house that runs everything Uh, so he picked up his toys each night put them away in the morning The toys were found strewn around the room. Grant said that when he was 14, something happened that totally convinced him that spirits were in the house. He said that he would open the front door, maybe to get a breeze. I don't know why. Anyway, the door kept slamming shut. Maybe there wasn't because the window opening (laughs) on the other side. Anyway, he finally found a heavy old iron, you know, the old time irons. Like a that holds doors open no i mean like the type they used to use in the old days oh, like iron a tire clothes. iron <laughs> <laughs> man me and betty over here are not paying attention <laughs> anyway they were usually yes, uh, iron and yep. that's why they're called irons because they were iron and yep. they, okay, i know exactly what you're talking about very heavy yes he propped that against the door okay he went to do his thing next thing he knows the door slams shut again Okay, well, that's not a breeze. He goes over there, and the iron is halfway across the floor. And that's when he realized, mm, <laughs> something's up. Mm. <laughs> this is not normal. But his toys being thrown out didn't give him any hints before? Well, he was a little boy. That, you know. Yeah. So, could this be little Augusta? Okay. Who's she? <laughs> she is a little daughter that died of whooping cough. Oh, my gosh. There really are not that many names. I don't know how I can't keep up. Well, you shouldn't have guzzled that drink anyway. (laughs) Okay. Don't tell them that. (laughs) Okay. So could it be little Augusta, who is known as a little prankster? Mm. She has been heard giggling and running around the third floor and in the hallway on the second floor. 
Guests at the inn have made many reports of Augusta. It seems she likes to tuck people in at night and has been known for her to gently stroke a guest's face, waking them up for breakfast. That would wake me up. (laughs) She likes to squeeze toes in the (laughs) guest room. (laughs) Why you say it like that? As well as jump on their bed as they're trying to sleep. (laughs) Say the squeeze toe because in the ghost adventures... And I'll oh. tell you what series that was. But Zach is laying on the bed. And oh, he, he goes, okay, can you squeeze my toes? <laughs> can you, I think Zach-ism. he even said, can you squeeze my big toes? <laughs> I think mom's favorite part of Ghost Adventures is that it's just these grown men that just sit around and talk to the air. To the air. It's Ghost Adventures season 14, episode one. Okay. Okay. To make reference to Can it. Can you squeeze my big toes? It, it, it was hilarious. I just laughed out loud. She LOL'd. <laughs> a wooden ball is often heard rolling down the hallway. A wooden ball? Yep. As opposed to a rubber ball. <laughs> <laughs> One guest reported to Becky in the morning that she had heard a music box throughout the entire night. How annoying. <laughs> Becky honestly answered that there is no music box in the inn at all. Anywhere. So little Augusta is the prankster. And it's thought that Mr. Hewton makes his appearance every now and then as whiffs of pipe tobacco go through the air. Is he the guy that they go to his grave? No, honey. He is Augusta's father. father. Okay. Well, who's the that guy that they the go see the grave? We're going to get to Elmer. Uh, Elmer. Okay. It seems that there's also an unidentified male spirit. This could be one of the dead that was at the funeral home or it could be Elmer McCurdy. So the funeral home, that would suck. Like if I was a ghost, I wouldn't be stuck at a funeral home where I like don't know anybody or anything. I wouldn't be stuck, period, anywhere. I'd rather on. haunt like a house, like my old house or somewhere I knew, but not haunt. Okay, sorry. Just a funeral home. Random thoughts. No, like where I was already dead. Yeah, that would stink. Okay. Now looked at separately, the two really have no connection. Elmer in this house, right? I'm going to connect them. Elmer was a crook. Not a very good one, I must add. In 1911, he attempted a train robbery, ended up with two jugs of whiskey, $3, and a gunshot to the head that killed him. I mean, whiskey? Come on, man. Go after something better. The mortician used too much arsenic. This arsenic was used to embalm in those days, it's not any longer, but it was. Okay. In fact, he used 200 times the amount usually used for embalming. Why? This caused... Did it kill the mortician? No, it just he just used it to embalm Elmer. But by using that much, it mummified him. It didn't turn him to glue? <laughs> Why would it turn him to glue? Elmer's glue. <laughs> cracking herself up no he's a mummy now (laughs) the funeral home kept his body in the back room and charged five cents per person oh poor elmer oh it gets worse for so five cents a person for a peek at the mummy a peek just a peek then elmer went to a (laughs) sideshow Where he was on display with things like two-headed calves and, you know, that kind of stuff at the sideshow. Poor Elmer. And then he became part of a traveling carnival and again was displayed with the unusual. I bet he really wished he was glue at this point. Probably. Poor Elmer. He was then used as a prop in the Long Beach Funhouse. What? By this time... Okay, now we've moved on. So by this time, he's referred to as the dummy, not the mummy, because people don't know that he's real. What? Yeah. So he's been used as this prop for so long. And just handed down to all these. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I remember this. Okay. So it was during this time that he was hung up. Someone, you know, used as a prop in this fun They really house. thought he was a prop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, someone knocked into him accidentally, but it was hard enough that his forearm broke off. They could see that it, there was real. Yeah, when it fell off, they could tell that there's like real stuff bone. in there. Yeah. There was bone in there. <gasps> um, they did tests on him and 
this was 65 years after his death. Oh my gosh. So the, the body was then identified as Elmer McCurdy. He was buried in the Guthrie Cemetery in the Boot Hill section. Weirdly enough, cement was poured over his grave. And this is the same thing that they used to do to the dead suspected of being vampires. So no rhyme or reason for that. Well, probably so that people wouldn't dig him up to dig see up if he still looked like a dummy. If, you or... know what? That makes perfect sense to me, believe it or not. That's sad. I would walk up to him and say hello too, poor guy. Now that, that was the sad story of Elmer. Here's the connection. You see, the murder mysteries, Becky takes the participants, remember who Becky is, mm -hmm, okay, mm -hmm. to the cemetery. There's only that one grave they visit, and that's Elmer's grave. There are rumors that Becky has conducted seances and rites at Elmer's grave. I told you. Of course, Becky denies this, but she sure has a weird fascination with Elmer. In fact, when she dies, she wants to be buried adjacent to his grave. Did hmm. she... By the attention she's giving given to him all this time, invite Elmer to the Stone Line Inn. Well, don't makes know. Makes you wonder. So now I have to bring in Ghost Adventures because in season dun 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 <laughs> surprise <laughs> surprise because in season fourteen, episode one, they visit the Stone Lion. Like I said, it was a great episode. Okay, I'm go I'm just gonna tell you a few things that stuck out to me about the episode. Okay, of course it's out there to watch. So please do, because there's a lot of funny little things, too. So they spoke to Michelle Smith, who has been the housekeeper at the inn since it opened in 1986. She said that she often hears knocking at doors, no one's there, and footsteps. But there is one night in particular that really scared her. Scared her. Scared her. Michelle used to sleep at the inn. She slept in a room on the third floor. One night, as she lay in bed, falling asleep, she felt someone slip in bed with her. Oh, gosh. And kind of snuggle up to her back. Nope. She knew she'd locked the door, so she knew there was not a living person in that room with her. Oh, my gosh. I would literally just lie there. She was just... so petrified that she just laid yeah, there. Yeah, I would just Threw the covers over her head and did eventually fall asleep. She fell asleep? I don't know. It's weird. Then she remembers finding herself in the basement. And I'm kind of thinking this Did was... she, like, astro project herself there? I'm kind of thinking this was in her sleep. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like weirdly. she astro projected herself. Oh my gosh. In the middle of the floor sat a bucket overflowing with water. Zach asked her whether she looked into the bucket. No, she said. She just watched the water run over the side. Zach suggested that perhaps the spirit was attempting scary. And that's the practice of looking into reflective surfaces in order to make contact with the dead. Scary. Scary. S That's pretty scary to me. S-C-R-Y. Okay. I think it's pronounced scry. Scry. Thank you. Okay. And whoever this spirit was, maybe Elmer, wanted to make contact with Michelle, who is said to have a deep connection to the property. Hmm. I'm thinking she's looking at the water overflowing and going, crap, I got to clean that up. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. That just totally reminds me of um, her want wanting to see her in... Bly Manor. Sorry. Warning. If you haven't watched it, I just ruined it. <laughs> oh, Ghost Adventures also captured a video of a door on the second floor opening. And later in the episode, as the four of them sat at the nerve center, so they're all together in this room, the door of the room opens. Zach asked three times for whoever, whoever opened the door to close it. The last time saying, please close the door. And the door slams shut. <gasps> Oh, I love these intelligent spirits. That then so all of cool a sudden, the spirit box. So they all get up, except for Jay. He's still there. And <laughs> all of a sudden, the spirit box turns on all by itself. When asked why the door was opened, a woman's voice very distinctly says, because I had to. Ooh, she wanted to squeeze those big toes. <laughs> no, that's a little girl doing that. Okay, sorry. Now, of course, there are lighter moments in the episode, like when the crew set up some wooden balls on the staircase. <laughs> it's dark, and you see, you know, the, the night vision. Yes. So Zach's sitting on the staircase with these wooden balls, like, coming down the steps. <laughs> and Zach sat down and goes <laughs> and invited Augusta to play with his balls. <laughs> 
and just looking at everyone else's cracking up <laughs> and his face is deadpan i honestly don't think he knew what he was saying oh or the way it sounded <laughs> but it was no it was hilarious no, thank you augusto can you come and play with my balls <laughs> Um, then there's Aaron, who is like my favorite. Yes. Anyway, he's investigating the third floor and sitting on the bed that Michelle had slept on. He got his spirit box going and all of a sudden he jumps up and runs across the room doing that weird dance that he always does. Oh, dude. Oh, bro. Oh, man. (laughs) Then he admits to the viewers that he felt something drop down the back of his pants. What? (laughs) And he was trying to get it out. (laughs) What? He then says something like, I guess when you're investigating, you better have your pants pulled up. Ghosts must not like plumbers crack. <laughs> oh, my gosh. These are so random. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd end with that. He just cracks. Aaron's my Keep favorite. Your pants he just pulled totally up. cracks will get me you. up. <laughs> Mom loves those faces that he makes. It's like, <gasps> which you guys can't see me making because. <laughs> no. Sorry. But it's like, dude, you're on a ghost. Oh my god! You're looking for this, and then they're always and surprised, so surprised when they find when it. Find it. <laughs> it's so great. Anyway, that's the Stone Lion Inn. Do, do you they re- still do these murder mysteries and everything? Still, I don't know well, during COVID. COVID. I don't know Damn during you, COVID, COVID. You know, Stone Lion Inn, Guthrie, Oklahoma. So cool. Thank you. I'm gonna tag them yeah. and reach out to them. We'll put them on our list of places to go because this is, that's so neat. I know. Wouldn't that be fun to do that murder mystery? Yeah. As long as she really doesn't do the seance. I'm not in that. But they, um, that. I'll say, I'll go up and say hi to Elmer. We can say hi to Elmer, but he ain't doing no seance. This was a good episode. Yeah. Oklahoma. 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 (laughs) She didn't know. (laughs) Where the wind blows, where the wind blows, the doors closed. (laughs) Moving on. So ending our stories, but this is Thanksgiving week. It is. (laughs) Planes, trains, and automobiles. Oh, my gosh. There really is no, like, Thanksgiving movie to watch, but every year we huddle around and we watch. Planes, trains, and and automobiles. We can quote parts. And that is my favorite part. So happy Thanksgiving. Happy Turkey Day. (laughs) So we are extra thankful for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you feel so inclined, we would love you to join our Patreon. And for those of you who have, thank you so much. Thank you. And just a reminder, if you guys join by the end of November, you're going to get a free little goodie from us. So when you join, message us there on Patreon or our email or on social media, wherever you want to get a hold of us, give us your address. We will only use it for the goodie we're going to send you. But we're, we're just extra. Yeah, <laughs> we're just <laughs> we're just extra thankful for you guys, and we want you to know it. So you also, besides the extra goodie, you're going to get extra episodes, and you get episodes released early. So you get lots of goodies. For five dollars so a month. Yep, and you can find us. Uh, it's www.patreon.com backslash Killer Hangover Podcast. We'll direct you there. I'll put the link here in the description of this episode as well uh, as on our website, where you will find photos from this episode and more. Guys, listeners, episode is coming out December seventh. So send us your stories, and if you're on Patreon. We're going to do a little something special for you guys and call you out. And we decided to do something kind of fun. So if you have a particular drink that you really enjoy, we're thinking that we are going to pick out of those drinks sent to us. So we want all patrons to also send us your favorite cocktail, beer, wine, whatever. And we're going to pick one to drink for our listeners episode and we'll give you a little shout out. Yep. That sounds like fun. Uh, Keep in mind, we are not reading the stories before we read them on air. We're not on air. We're we don't share these stories. Yeah. No. Alex, my husband, is reading them first. He's picking his favorites and then we're going to read them. So you're going to get our first reaction to them. That's right. So email them to us at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. Any personal stories you've had? Any personal stories. True crime stories. Any Paranormal. paranormal stories. Send us a story. 
So again, we're really thankful for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're going to be covering stories from... New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Well, I'm excited. I'm really excited, too. This was another great episode, Mom. It was fun. It was sad. Terribly sad, but I'm happy I was able to lighten it up. Thank you. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. Love you, kid.